welcome to By the People for the Podcast, produced by the American Civil Liberties Union of New Hampshire. Today we're talking about bail reform, something that you may have heard in the press recently over the last few months. New Hampshire passed comprehensive bail reform in 2018 and modified it again in 2019. Bail reform refers to the part of the criminal justice system between the time of your arrest and the resolution of your case, all during which time you are presumed innocent. And while we go forth in this conversation, I want you to remember one really important fact. Two-thirds of the jail population in this country are people being held pre-trial, meaning these are people who are being held before the resolution of their case. They have not been convicted, and yet they're being jailed. Bail reform sought to change that here in New Hampshire. Today, we'll be speaking with three people who have direct experience with the bail system in New Hampshire. The first is our ACLU New Hampshire Smart Justice Organizer, Joseph Lascaz. The second is Professor Buzz Schur of UNH Law School. And the third is Cynthia Musso of the New England Innocence Project. Before we talk to any of them, however, I must tell you, because our lawyers make me, nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice. Joining me in studio is Joseph Lascaz, our Smart Justice Organizer. Welcome to the podcast, Joseph. Hi, Jeannie. Thank you. So you are our Smart Justice Organizer. For our listeners, can you help explain what the Smart Justice Campaign is? Sure. My uh, job responsibility with the ACLU, in a broad sense, is to lower the mass incarceration rate in New Hampshire. And the Smart Justice Campaign is really focused on empowering formerly incarcerated individuals. Is that right? That is correct. I deal directly with people that are impacted by the incarceration system and find them and really develop their stories and find ways that uh, what they've been through can help other people from either avoiding those situations or transition through re-entering society. So ending mass incarceration is the real heart and soul of the Smart Justice campaign. That is correct. And bail reform is a big part of that. Yes, it is. It actually plays into it a lot because bail reform, it helps people from avoiding having to be incarcerated in the first place and get them the actual treatment and help that they need. So many people currently sitting in jail across the country are actually people who are awaiting trial, right? They're people who have not been convicted. Yes, they're pretrial. So pretrial is when a person initially gets arrested by the police. From the time that they are arrested until the end of their case, the litigation happens, that period of time is pretrial. Now, that pretrial time can range anywhere from let's say 90 days to six months to a year to two years. It all depends on the complexity of the case. But during that time, it's very crucial because that pretrial time allows a person to mount their defense. It allows them to seek alternatives to incarceration. It allows them to get everything in order for the upcoming litigation that they have. And importantly, if you are pretrial, it means you retain your presumption of innocence, both under the New Hampshire Constitution and under the U.S. Constitution. That is correct. So when you talk about pretrial, and you said it could be weeks, months, even years. Yes. Right? If somebody's in jail that time, it means, I'm assuming they're going to lose their job, they're going to lose their housing. What are the consequences? Forget the trial, right? Just the personal consequences of being jailed for that amount of time. When you are sitting pre-trial, you no longer are allowed to legally run a business. So if you, 
let's say had a construction business or you had a business that you started on your own, you cannot run your business while you are waiting, while you are locked up. So that affects, that can affect your income, that can affect dependents, that can affect family members. It, it the, the, the range is very far. When you are sitting pre-trial, you are, in a sense, you're waiting <laughs> for the principal to come and, and decide what's going on. So it can affect you in so many ways. People that have children, they they lose that one-on-one time, those bonding times, those moments where certain things happen and the parent is needed right then and there to address and correct that situation. Also, while you're sitting pre-trial, you lose your ability to strategize and advocate for yourself the way that you normally would be able to with the resources that are available to people that are free. I'm assuming you also lose an apartment, for instance, yep. right? You're, House, you're yep. not able to pay rent. Housing, yep. Unless you have someone out there that is willing to pick up all of your financial obligations, yes. Housing, you lose. Vehicle, your transportation, you lose. And all of those things are extremely important to people staying out. So bail reform has been making progress across the country. Yes, is that it has. right? That is correct. As a matter of fact, it recently has gained a lot of traction in New Jersey and Connecticut. Uh, and a bunch of other states. This is really seen as part and parcel to our nation's effort to end mass incarceration. I was just reading something the other day from the Vera Institute um, of Justice. And people across the United States are just waking up right now to the fact that the prison population is really destroying the country right now. Joseph, we've talked about bail reform, and you've underscored to me so many times why you personally are committed to bail reform. Can you share that perspective with our listeners? Why is bail reform so personal for you? We're talking about good people who made mistakes, not bad people doing bad things. We're not talking about letting people that are repeat offenders go. What we're talking about is this. I'll give you a scenario. So you wake up for your normal day. You go about it. It's a Monday and things are a little off and you're getting ready to go to work. And let's say something happens and one thing leads to another and you are arrested and you're at the jail. Well, if you don't know anybody to call and you don't have a support system, well, what happens if you have a child that you have to pick up in the afternoon that's dependent on you and you also have older people that you look after and you care for that you need to go check on them, give them their medications and make sure that they're attended to. and. A lot of people have pets too. Let's just say you have a pet that also needs your attention at the end of the day. You can have a, all different types of scenarios that require your attention. And if you are not able to post bail or get out, those are the people that also suffer. And if you think that I'm talking about a scenario that can't happen, believe me, this can happen to you. And everyone thinks it can't until it actually does. Now joining us in studio is Professor Buzz Schur. Welcome to the studio, Buzz. Pleasure to be here. Can you introduce yourself a little bit? What's your background? I uh, was a public defender in New Hampshire for 13 years, trying all sorts of cases, dealt with bail issues on the ground for many, many years. Then for the last 25 years, I've been on the faculty of UNH Law. That's excellent. And you've been involved with the discussion around bail reform in New Hampshire pretty much since its inception. From the beginning. So let's start. Before the beginning, let's start with the old bail system. What can you tell us about the system prior to bail reform? Somebody would come in front of the judge charged with a misdemeanor, 
and the judge would say, oh, you're charged with this misdemeanor. I always use $250 cash bail for this misdemeanor. The judge would have an informal schedule in their mind, and there would be no attention to the particular circumstances of, of that individual. So given that the amount of bail set never took into account a person's financial situation, what was the result? when bail was set so randomly? Way too many people, probably hundreds of people over a year, but certainly in a particular day, there are probably 50 to 100 people around New Hampshire who had bail set less than $1,000, which meant the judge didn't really think they were dangerous. If the judge thought somebody was dangerous or the police said somebody was dangerous, they'd set bail at $25,000 cash or corporate or even higher. So, But these other people would have bail set at $1,000, $500, $750, and they didn't have that money. You know, as we know, 40% of the population can't uh, meet an emergency of $500. So they would sit in jail until their misdemeanor trial, even if this was their first time in court. And very likely, except for the significant misdemeanor repeat offenders, they wouldn't get the amount of time as a sentence that they ended up serving pre-trial. So poor people were sitting in jail just because they didn't have money, not because there was a risk they weren't going to appear, not because they were dangerous. And in this situation, when somebody is awaiting trial, they're presumed innocent during this period of time. They are. You know, the best judges set bail knowing that the person before them may be guilty, and, but maybe not guilty. And that putting the person in jail when they may not be guilty really is a significant imposition, to say the least, in their life. And I assume if the charges are eventually dropped or they're, or they're acquitted, the state doesn't make them whole, right? The state doesn't pay them for the lost wages or their lost housing during that period of time of pretrial incarceration. Exactly. It, the, it is, in the worst of ways, uh, time lost, completely lost in a very negative environment. So this is the context that the legislature came upon when it came to the conversation about bail reform, where we had hundreds of people every year detained in New Hampshire simply because they were poor and couldn't afford to pay whatever bail amount the judge set. So enter bail reform, SB 556, um, which was introduced and enacted in 2018. So tell us what SB 556 it divided the the people into three groups. Group one was people who there was no risk of not appearing for trial. They were not dangerous in any significant way, and they get personal recognizance bail, fondly known as PR bail. They don't have to put up any money to get out. The second group was those who, given their past history of some sort, or given that they were from away, were a potential risk not to show up for trial. One of the core purposes of bail from the beginning. That group, if the judge concluded by a preponderance of the evidence that there was a risk that they weren't going to show up for trial, could set cash bail, but only in an amount that they could make, thereby giving them a financial stake in showing up for trial. They would lose X amount of dollars if they didn't show up for trial. But that that group, that second group, is really what solved the problem we were just talking about, right? It would make sure that people did not sit in jail pre-trial for the sole reason that they could not afford to pay bail. That was the core reform that came with bail reform. And then there's a third group that you mentioned. So 
What's the third group? The third group is those who potentially are dangerous, who the prosecution can establish that the individual, there's clear and convincing evidence that the individual is dangerous to themselves or to others. The second important thing that bail reform did is it expanded the group eligible to be detained without bail if dangerousness was proven, to everybody charged with a crime. So that was a significant, uh, the second significant change with bail reform. So the issue of dangerousness has come up repeatedly in the conversation of bail reform. Can you talk us through on how a dangerousness determination gets made? What gets considered when determining whether somebody is dangerous? Any relevant factor that the judge considers. Under the current law. Under the current law, any relevant factor can be considered. It's a very expansive uh, realm of factors that could be considered. So that could include somebody's criminal record. It could include the charges, the current charges. It could include their... Prior dangerous conduct of some sort, whether it was charged or not. Whatever the prosecutor wants to bring in front of the judge. You know, the prosecutor can make an argument that somebody who's a drug dealer dealing fentanyl, that's killing people. I think there's a pretty good argument that that person is clearly and convincingly dangerous. So again, to go back to the very beginning, the law as to dangerousness now focuses on the particular individual. So let's compare the two. So before bail reform, there were still people who were released pre-trial. Yeah. They were people who... Had money. Post-bail reform, there were obviously people that the court would consider dangerous. Mm -hmm. So... Pre-bail reform, there was no law that allowed the court to hold somebody without bail if they weren't charged with a very select set of domestic violence-related crimes. Correct. So if a court believed that somebody was dangerous under the old system, what did they do? They'd set high, high cash or corporate charity bail. They'd set it at 25000 50000 100000 And what resulted is... Rich, dangerous people would meet that bail. They'd pay the bail commissioners, the bail's at 50000 They'd pay the bail, the, the bail bondsman 5000 bucks and put up some property, and they'd get out. And poor people who were dangerous would not get out. So we've, crea- we've tried to streamline a system that was wealth-based to now have a system that is based on the actual individual factors of the person standing before the judge. Exactly. And the, fa- the factors that matter are, are they a risk not to appear and dangerousness? That's what bail has always been about and has should only have been about. So can we talk about some of the concerns that have been expressed about bail reform? Um, there's been a lot of press about bail reform over the last few months. And some of the press has complained about people who have failed to show up. Right. So in theory, whatever bail had been set had not served its purpose of bringing the person back to court. So in response to those concerns, what do you say? Well, there's several things that judges can do in those circumstances. One, they can uh, suspend their license. Two, they can set cash bail. Three, they can find them in contempt of court for not appearing. So that's what the judge can do. Going to the other issue that's come up in the press, police departments have alleged that people they think are dangerous have not been detained based on dangerousness. 
How do you respond to that? Uh, Two responses. One, police departments and prosecutors liked the old system because they could just say somebody was dangerous to the judge and the person would be held on a high cash bail. At least a poor person who was dangerous, they said was dangerous, would be held on high cash bail. Now they actually have to prove it with evidence, with witnesses, that there's clear and convincing evidence that they're dangerous. They are disagreeing with some of the things, some of the rulings that judges are making. Um, So that's the nature of a new system. They're learning better now how to prove dangerousness by clear and convincing evidence rather than just standing up and saying it. And that's a very positive change. Second, the system as to dangerousness is holding the right people now like it wasn't before. Both rich and poor dangerous people are now being detained without bail, whereas under the old system, just poor people who were dangerous were being detained without bail. You've mentioned the evidentiary standard a couple times, clear and convincing evidence. Why is the standard clear and convincing evidence? Was that a political decision or was that a legal decision? It's a constitutional requirement. The New New Hampshire and the U.S. Supreme Court has said, if you're going to detain someone without bail, they get a hearing, they get a lawyer, and proof has to be by clear and convincing evidence. So that's a constitutional requirement if you are going to take away somebody's liberty before they've been convicted. Exactly. And again, to go back to something we talked about earlier, one of the reasons for that constitutional requirement, in addition to due process, is there is a presumption of innocence. And we want to be particularly careful about jailing somebody who might be innocent. So I want to go to a different issue that's come up, and that's the issue of the intersection between bail reform, homelessness, and substance use disorders. This is New Hampshire. We're in the midst of an opioid epidemic, and so there are a lot of concerns about people with substance use disorders. So my understanding is there's a provision in the bail reform statute that relates specifically to homelessness and to substance use disorders. Can you tell us about that? Yes, they actually appear in a couple of places. One, in terms of determining whether someone's a risk not to appear. In and of itself, homelessness is not a basis for that finding. So the notion then being that just because somebody is homeless, you can't make the assumption that they will not show up to court and therefore you cannot use that as a reason for pretrial detention. Exactly. And then second, when you're making the dangerousness determination, neither homelessness nor substance abuse in and of themselves can be used to determine dangerousness. Put it a little better, if the only proof of somebody being dangerous is that they have a substance abuse problem, that's not a basis to find by clear and convincing evidence that they're dangerous. And that makes sense. I mean, we have fought as a society for decades to try and prove that a substance use disorder is a medical issue and not a criminal issue. We have failed ever since, even before the war on drugs, but the war on drugs has pretty much clearly been a failure. It's been going on since the Nixon administration, so 40 plus years, getting close to 50 years, and it has not resulted in uh, less drug crimes, and it has not resulted in less uh, substance abuse. So we all now know using the criminal justice system to fix substance abuse or to address the substance abuse problem really has not worked and will not work. 
And I think it's almost self-evident that the same goes for homelessness, right? Jailing somebody does not result in them having a house. It doesn't result in them having a job. As soon as they get released, they're going to go back to the same condition under which they were prior. Exactly. Particularly when you're jailing a homeless person pre-trial for criminal trespass in a park. They're never going to get a jail sentence if they're convicted of that. And to jail them pre-trial just because you want them off the street is wrong. It's a misuse of the system, quite frankly. So bail reform passed the legislature with bipartisan support both in 2018 and in 2019. I understand that there's a bail commission that has been set up to monitor bail reform. You were on the bail commission last year. What can you tell us about that process? Uh, that was a really useful process where we heard from all the stakeholders. People, uh, there were police on the commission, there were legislators on the commission, there were judges on the commission, uh, there was the executive director of the public defender program. We heard from many prosecutors, we heard from bail bonds people, and we heard best we could at that time, even though the Bail Reform Act had only been in effect for about a month, a month and a half, we heard what the immediate problems seemed to be and did some tweaks, which were in the end supported by, again, a bipartisan coalition. And we're back at it again this year. So the goal remains the same, which is to continue to ensure that we improve our criminal justice system. I think I can say that nobody wants to go back to the old system where we jailed poor people simply for being poor. And so we now have another opportunity to evaluate bail reform with all the stakeholders at the table uh, and come up with bipartisan improvements if there are any. Exactly. I'm now excited to welcome Cynthia Musso from the New England Innocence Project to the studio. Welcome, Cynthia. Thank you. So we're talking bail reform, and you're in the studio today to specifically talk to us about the consequences of pre-trial detention. I've heard this word trial tax come up in a number of conversations. Can you help us understand what that means? Yeah, so the trial tax is a sort of a a concept that means that if you go to trial, you're going to receive a higher sentence if you're convicted than if you plead guilty prior to trial. That's sort of something that's commonly known by all parties involved in the criminal legal system. It's a pretty well-documented term. So how does that play into bail reform? So the trial tax is important because what ends up happening is people are afraid to go to trial. And when they're held pre-trial on bail, that fear can become really overwhelming such that when they're given an offer to go to the, to resolve their case by a plea, they're much more inclined to take that plea quicker and without sort of fully investigating their case and fully doing all the work on their case that we would prefer to do as defense attorneys. Without doing any of that, they want to plead guilty right away just so that they can end their period of incarceration. Um, there's, as has already been discussed, there's been so many consequences that come along with incarceration. People want to end those as soon as possible for themselves and for their families. So the issue of, of pleas that you're talking about, one of the reasons that the Innocence Project and the New England Innocence Project care about bail reform is this pressure that gets put on people who are held pretrial to plead guilty, including people who may not actually be be guilty. 
Right. That is our primary concern. So our, our main goal is, is prevention and correction of wrongful convictions. And one of the major issues that we focus on is this guilty plea problem. So we know that since 1989, there's been 2,500 exonerations in the United States. Of those 2,500, 500 have been guilty pleas. So those are people who pled guilty even though they were innocent. That's right. And we know that those people are innocent. They've been exon- they've been officially exonerated. So what we're trying to do is avoid any of those 500 going forward and bail reform is a critical piece uh, in that equation. So this seems pretty easy to understand, right? You have somebody who is facing months and months and months of pretrial detention during which time they're going to lose their job, they're going to lose housing, there's going to be consequences on their family. The prosecutor walks in and says, hey, if you plead guilty, you can be home by dinner time." Is that what we're talking about? That's exactly what we're talking about. So not just even home by dinner time, but you could be home by dinner time or you could get way less than if you go to trial. The pressure that's exerted upon them is greater than any pressure that could be exerted upon them if they're out in in the community. They know that they're away from the government, knows that they're away from their family. They know that they're losing housing. They're aware of all of those collateral consequences. And so when they give these offers, they'll even explicitly package that with, and if we go to trial, I'm going to ask for this. It's explicitly sort of said, this is the benefit for you. And this is the drawback if you don't do what we're doing. Bail reform isn't just about bail. Bail reform really goes to how just is our system? How fair is our system? Right. Bail is sort of the first decision that's made in the criminal trial process. um, And that can affect everything sort of down the line, start to finish. I really appreciate you coming in and sharing the perspective of the New England Innocence Project, Cynthia. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I want to thank all of our guests today for sharing their expertise and views with us on bail reform. The ACLU of New Hampshire looks forward to continuing our work with all stakeholders to improve bail reform and to continue New Hampshire's incredible progress towards comprehensive criminal justice reform. The ACLU of New Hampshire is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization devoted to protecting and expanding civil rights and liberties in the Granite State. For more information about our organization, you can check us out online at www.aclu-nh.org or check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. <laughs>